Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, please. Mark chapter 10, we're studying through the Gospel of Mark, we're in chapter 10, we're looking at the first 12 verses. The topic, Jesus attributes the Pharisees' question about divorce to their hard-heartedness, the title of our message, breaking up is hard-hearted to do. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are going to venture into territory that uh, touches uh, many hearts this morning. I pray that your spirit, Lord, would minister uh, your grace and, and uh, love and mercy and forgiveness where it's needed, uh, that nothing would be misunderstood, Lord, but everything would be positively and wonderfully understood in terms of your love for us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. All I really need to know, I learned in kindergarten. That's the premise and the title of a book written by a guy named Robert Fulgham in 1988. It was immensely popular. It stayed on the New York Times bestseller list for about two years. Here are just five of the main life lessons we learn in kindergarten. Share everything, play fair, don't hit people, put things back where you found them, and my personal favorite, flush. I'm not 100% sure that all I really need to know about life I learned in kindergarten, but I am certain that all I really need to know about marriage I learned from the garden. In an attempt to polarize him in the eyes of the people, the Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered by going back before the law was given. He went all the way back to the sixth day of creation to the Garden of Eden and to how God defined marriage. Jesus did more than answer them. He took the topic out of the theoretical and made it personal, talking about the condition of their hearts. I'll organize my thoughts on these verses around two points. Number one, if you're casual about divorce, check yourself for a diseased heart. And number two, if you're casual about divorce, check yourself for a derelict heart. Let's take a look first of all in verses one through nine at the diseased heart. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage are volatile subjects, both in the world, but especially among believers in Jesus Christ. They're emotionally charged. All of us are affected in some way by marriages gone wrong. Whatever state you find yourself in today, please hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to you in the word of God and receive it as God's grace to your hurting heart. Many of my comments will be generic. They'll be true, but they may not address the subtleties and nuances of your particular situation with regards to marriage and divorce and remarriage. Bear that in mind because we're not here to heap burdens on you. I guess what I'm saying is what I say today might be uh, for you, but it's not directed at you, and I, I think you understand. So if you hear something, it's coming from the word of God, and if you need clarification, uh, then we would be happy to give it. If you're in sin or contemplating it, then you'll want to repent. If you failed in the past, receive God's grace and mercy, understand that you are or can be restored at the cross. And so let's launch into it in verse one. Then he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. Multitudes gathered to him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. Now we are understandably fascinated by the miracles, the signs, and the wonders that Jesus went about performing. Jesus was first and foremost a teacher. It was his custom to teach. We believe in miracles and in signs and in wonders even up to our present day. But we leave them to God to perform in his will and in his timing while we go on teaching and sharing the gospel. 
The gospel is not a lesser message if no miracles attend it. It is not something greater when miracles do attend it. All by itself, when it's preached, it is the power of God unto salvation. And then verse two, then the Pharisees came and they asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? Now the intent of the Pharisees was to test Jesus. That's the same word used of the devil tempting Jesus in the wilderness. So you see the, uh, the bent and the condition of their heart. Jesus is going to answer their question by first asking a question of his own. Now I like that because it helps you to focus on what is really going on. Then you should try it the next time you're asked a Bible question. Uh, take, take a pause and say, hey, uh, let me ask you a question. Sometimes, uh, well, a lot of times we get calls at the church from people who are uh, looking for a church uh, and they wanna know uh, a little bit about our church. Say, tell me a little bit about the church or you know, what you believe and those kinds of questions. And uh, you, know, you can spend a, a, a long time telling people about the church and do they wanna know the history, do they want this? So what I normally do is I say, well, let me ask you this, let me, I ask you a question. What are you most concerned about when it comes to churches? And some people will say, well, I, I don't know what you mean. I say, well, let me give you some idea. Uh, are you most concerned about youth ministry or children's ministry or Sunday school or Bible teaching or the gifts of the Spirit? Oh, yeah, that's it, the gifts of the Spirit. And then, and then we're able to have a conversation about what is really meaningful to them. And I'm able to tell them that they'll either be happy here or they won't be happy here, depending on their background and where they're coming from. And so a lot of times, it's very helpful. It's, it's not a dodge or uh, in anything rude to ask questions when you're asked a question because sometimes people don't really know what they're asking or you don't know exactly what they're asking. Sometimes we'll answer a question on Wednesday nights, Jake or I, well, Jake always answers them perfectly, but I'll answer a question and then the person will say, well, that's not what I was asking. Or my, they'll be nice to me and my wife will tell me at home, she goes, that's not what they were asking. I go, really, that's what I heard? She goes, that's why you need hearing aids. But anyway, <laughs> ask questions. Verse three. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Jesus started with Moses because this wasn't a random question about divorce. Among the Jews, especially the rabbis, there was a controversy over divorce and the grounds for divorce. The controversy was over the interpretation of a particular phrase in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of the law. So listen while I read to you Deuteronomy 24, verses one through four. Here it is. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now the rabbis argued over the interpretation of the particular phrase, because he has found some uncleanness in her. It divided the two schools of Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai 
popular first century Jewish scholars. The Hillel school took a very lax view and said that uncleanness meant that the husband could divorce his wife for almost any reason at all. The Shammai school took a stricter view and said that uncleanness referred to sexual sins. Now, it's not our purpose today to teach the passage from Deuteronomy, but I will say a few quick things about it. Among the Jews, it was common for a wife to be put away by her husband. It was an arbitrary action by the husband, not subject to the wife's consent. She need not be guilty of anything, and she certainly had not broken God's law. The dismissed wife was in a kind of legal and spiritual limbo. She was technically still a married woman. As a wife who had been abandoned, she would have a very difficult time surviving if she did not have her original family to go back to. Remarriage to another man was unlikely since the circumstances of her dismissal by her husband put a stigma upon her. Moses addressed this terrible practice of putting away wives. He demanded that the husband give the dismissed wife a certificate of divorce. It was her evidence that she had done nothing unlawful except that she was detested by her husband. This would remove any stigma from her and it would enable her to legally remarry. Moses wasn't giving permission to divorce. He wasn't establishing new grounds for divorce. He was trying to regulate a practice that was foul and unfair. It was a great mercy to the wives who were treated unfairly. All right, so now back to the Pharisees and Jesus. Verse five, Jesus answered and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. That's a zinger. No one saw that coming. They spent hours and hours arguing over what Moses may have meant by a certain phrase when the greater reality is that Moses should never have had to regulate a despicable practice like that in the first place. And so they dug into it and say, well, what do you think Moses meant by uncleanness? And, and hours and hours and, and page after page they'd spent on this. And somebody needed to step forward and say, hey, guys, we don't even want to go there as we say today. We shouldn't need this regulation if we're following God's regulation for marriage. And so the real issue is what we would call sclerocardia. That's the Greek translation of the word hardness of heart. Their hearts had grown hard toward God. They were dishonoring him by disrespecting marriage and by looking for the loopholes by which to disregard God's clear intention for and description of marriage. Just to be absolutely clear about marriage, Jesus referred them to the garden. In verse six, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Yes, we take the garden account as history, not an allegory or a mythology. One primary reason we must take it as history is that Jesus took this account as history. You know, we have, I love the guys at the Institution of Creation Research and Answers in Genesis, all of that. I love all that creation stuff and all the arguments from Genesis and stuff. It's fantastic stuff. But to me, the primary reason we take Genesis 1 through 11 as being literal is that Jesus did. And unless we're ready to say that Jesus just didn't have Darwin to refer to and didn't know any better, 
uh, then we take things the way Jesus took them. He spoke of special creation. He spoke of the garden. He spoke of Adam and Eve as if it were all literal. He seemed to believe in special creation over a period of six 24-hour days. And remember this about Jesus too. This is from Colossians 1.16. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator. He was there in the garden with Adam and Eve. We trust his testimony on these early moments of history. Now we can summarize God's description of marriage by saying it is the monogamous heterosexual union of one man and one woman to be maintained as long as they live, serving as the firm foundation for humans living in society. This simple definition is a foil for all the imaginations of men and women and governments seeking to substitute their own definitions of marriage. Can I have multiple spouses? No. Ah, you say, but there were lots of polygamous relationships among God's people in the Bible. Well, as we look at scripture, none of those arrangements match the structure of marriage given by God from the beginning. Just because the Bible records them doesn't indicate God was pleased with them. To the contrary, a direct command against polygamy is given to the kings that were to rule Israel. They're told not to multiply wives to themselves in Deuteronomy 17, 17. And so is there polygamy in the Bible? Yes. Does God approve of it? No. God is gracious and forgiving, uh, and he says it's one man, one woman. Can I marry someone of the same sex? No. We certainly recognize that some people have same-sex attraction. Uh, it's different from homosexuality, which is uh, committing sexual sin with someone of the same sex. And so we need to make a designation. People have same-sex attraction. I don't agree with those who say that they are wired that way from birth, but if it turns out that they are, it still doesn't make it godly. Nick Rohn is a pastor at a place called Sojourner's Church in Albert Leah, Minnesota. He has a burden to help the church think through issues regarding sexuality and singleness and celibacy. He's burdened because he is a Christian who admits to having same-sex attraction. Here's what he wrote. Same-sex attraction is the result of a broken creation, and in that sense, it is sinful and dishonorable, as we are told in Romans 1.26. It is an effect of the fall of man. However, experiencing same-sex attraction is not the same as sinning. Rather, same-sex attraction should be treated like any other temptation to sin. They should be fought with blood earnestness in a way that recognizes the deceitfulness of the heart and the finitude of the mind. When I do this, when I fight temptation, turn to Jesus, trust his promises, rely on his Holy Spirit, God is pleased. He is not mainly displeased because I need to fight, but he's pleased because I am fighting. This is good news for all of us who experience all manner of temptations. May this fact lead us, no matter our particular groaning, to rest in Jesus more deeply, fight temptation more fiercely, and look forward to the day when our fight of faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
And then Rowan has this suggestion. He says that sanctified singleness, sanctified singleness is a solution that we can proclaim for people who have same-sex attraction. He says, if we are going to ask those who struggle with same-sex attraction to reject their longings for as long as the Lord wills, then we must have a strong theology of singleness that does not present it as simply a transitional stage on the way to marriage. It seems that in many churches, marriage is assumed for everyone. And when it doesn't happen for certain people, they're left wondering if the church is a place where they can truly belong. Let's face it, when somebody comes up to us and says, I have same-sex attraction, it still freaks us out. But it shouldn't. And somebody comes up and says, I'm practicing homosexuality, well, that's sin. Uh, And there's no doubt about that. But same-sex attraction is not the same as sinning. And there are people who struggle with this. And just changing the name ministers to people. I've talked to a lot of people over the last few years and I've said, you have same-sex attraction, and I've taken an approach like this, and it, it has an immediate healing effect. Now, some of them repent and go on to remain in the church and struggle, as this guy says. Others fall back into their sin. Uh, but this is the approach that we take. Some people still have opposite-sex attraction after they're married, and that's a bad thing. And uh, they need to struggle against it, right? Jesus said, if you have uh, adultery or you have lust in your heart towards a woman or a man, that's adultery. And so we struggle with it. And so same-sex attraction, not something to cringe at. I'm say, I don't think people are wired that way, but even if they are, they're not to commit sin and we are to provide a healing atmosphere for them in which to experience the Lord. Can I engage in sexual activities with someone other than my spouse? no. And neither can I engage in sex before I'm married or if I find myself unmarried. It is within marriage that God says you are to enjoy sexual relations and nowhere else. Of course, people can do all these things and more. If, however, you are claimed by Jesus, then no, you can't do them, not without it being sin. When a person has any of these questions, a good question to ask them is, are you submitted to God? If they are, then these questions have already been answered for them. Every one of these questions I've asked is already answered in the word of God the way I answered them. And a person who is submitted to God knows those answers and is either sincere uh, and just struggling or is looking for a loophole. People proclaim, God wants me to be happy. I wish I had a nickel for every time somebody told me that God wanted them to be happy, I'd be a millionaire. As though that settles it. Well, God wants you to be holy for your sake. True happiness only results from holiness, and holiness derives from pleasing God, not from pleasing our own sinful lusts. Now, let me stop to explain that there are biblical grounds for a divorce and subsequent remarriage. There are at least two. In the telling of this incident in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is recorded as saying this. He said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Now, sexual immorality is the more modern translation of the word fornication. The word fornication includes premarital sex, incest, sodomy, harlotry, 
perversion, and bestiality. It is really a catch-all term for any sexual sin, both before and after marriage. Adultery is fornication committed by a married man or woman. Sexual immorality by a spouse, according to Jesus, is biblical grounds for a divorce. That's what he meant, that's what he said. He said, there are no grounds except for the case of sexual immorality. Now, he wasn't commanding a divorce when there is sexual immorality, only permitting it. Many marriages have survived the sexual immorality of one or both spouses who have repented and been granted forgiveness. Nevertheless, the offended spouse may choose divorce and is then free to remarry as long as they marry a believer. Wow, what did I just say? And everybody's on different sides of this. Marriage is a really heated issue, you understand that, right? And so that's our position, we're sticking to it. Um, Plenty of people out there will tell you Jesus didn't really mean that. Yes, he did. It's not your first option. And when people come and they talk to us sadly and they say, I just found out my husband or my wife is having an affair and then we stop and say, you mean they're committing adultery? I don't like the word affair, it sounds so avant-garde or something, you know, it's crazy. Uh, Yes, okay, Um, what do you want to do? Well, I want my marriage to work. All right, let's do that. Let's work on that. Let's contact him or her. Let's get together. Let's try and work this out. And plenty of times it works out. There's forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation and restoration. But if that doesn't happen, the offended spouse has grounds for a divorce that frees them to remarry. That's what Jesus said. There's another situation where the Bible establishes grounds for a divorce and subsequent remarriage. It's the abandonment by your non-believing spouse. The apostle Paul said, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called us to peace. In Corinth, the believers had come to a false conclusion that if you were married to a non-believer, you should get a divorce. And so they were getting saved. Remember, it's first-generation Christianity. They hear the gospel, they get saved, and they start getting into some of the teaching. And they think, whoa, wait a minute, I'm unequally yoked to a non-believer. I need to get a divorce from my non-believing spouse. Paul said, no, if the non-believer wants to remain married to you, then stay married and have a sanctifying effect on their life. If, however, the non-believer abandoned the believing spouse, they should not try to stop them from getting a divorce. The believer is not bound to that marriage. Afterward, the believer is free to remarry as long as they marry a believer. You notice I keep saying as long as they marry a believer. I can't tell you how many people after we get through you know the early part of the counseling and figure out that they're going to get remarried so well this guy that you're seeing this gal that you're seeing are they a believer well they're something you don't want to do that now it's always uh, it's not always as simple as all that I'm portraying for example let's say your spouse is involved in pornography The word fornication is a translation of pornea from where we get our word pornography. Is that grounds for divorce? If you say it is, how deeply must the offending spouse be involved in it? And that's a serious question, I mean that question, because we're exposed to pornography almost constantly in our modern world. And and so the question is, am I looking for an excuse to get out of the marriage, uh, or, or is this a serious 
problem with pornography and, and how serious does it have to be? These are sticky issues. What exactly constitutes abandonment? What about physical abuse or mental or verbal abuse? Are those types of abandonments? And again, we must ask how severe must they become? Are you really going to tell a woman being abused to endure it because her dirtbag husband who professes to know Jesus won't abandon her and isn't committing adultery? In other words, do you have your checklist? Well, let me ask you, is your husband committing adultery? No. Uh, is he abandoning you? No. Then it doesn't matter what else he's doing to you. You need to stay there. Well, some of you have talked to people. There's some terrible things that people do to other people. And no, you don't need to stay there. We may not be talking about divorce immediately. But if you're being abused, especially physically abused, the first thing you do is you dial 911 and then we'll go from there. And then it's easier to talk to your husband while he's in jail uh, and get him to figure out that what he's doing is wrong and then we can work on your marriage through the glass. Uh, I'm making a little bit of fun of it but I wanna be clear about this because sadly I've had women come back years later and say you knew I was being abused and you didn't do anything about it. You told me to stay in that relationship and I said no, no we never would do that. Well, you didn't make it clear. Look, I don't wanna to add to your burden, but we didn't do that, we're sorry. Sorry I missed the signs. But, you know, so th these aren't all cut and dried. So we take a page out of Moses' book. God wants to protect the innocent, never add to their misery. In Old Testament times, husbands were mistreating their wives, and so Moses stepped in to protect the wife. He was concerned about the plight of the wife being unjustly put away and he stepped in to regulate the hardness of their husband's hearts so she was set free from stigma in order to remarry. God is no less gracious today under the new covenant. One conservative but insightful commentator put it this way, he said, in summary, what are the biblical grounds for divorce? The answer is sexual immorality and abandonment. Are there additional grounds for divorce beyond these two? Possibly. Is divorce ever to be treated lightly or employed as the first recourse? Absolutely not. So if we remember that, we're on good, firm footing. Now, within the framework of the biblical grounds revealed for divorce, we need to struggle with each situation and its unique details, holding to the sanctity of marriage as it was originally modeled, but extending grace to innocents who are the victims of the hard-heartedness of others. No one ever comes in and says, I'm going to divorce my spouse without any biblical grounds because I have a heart that is totally hardened against God. I know this is wrong. I either don't care or I'm so selfish that I don't think God's word applies to me right now. I would long for that because now you're dealing with somebody that you can deal with. You can say, all right, you, at least you've identified the real problem here it's between you and God. It's a heart problem between you and God. It has nothing to do with you and your spouse. And we can urge them to admit it, to confess it, and to repent it. And then we'll get back on track with the Lord. If you're casual about divorce, check yourself for a derelict heart. Verses 10 through 12. Now his disciples are going to ask Jesus to clarify his answer. He does, and as he does, we get a further insight into the kind of heart that is casual about divorce. It's a heart derelict of its duties and responsibilities to the spouse. Most of the professing Christians I've had to confront over the years about their non-biblical divorce have been extremely selfish. It's all about them. They claim that their spouse doesn't quite live up to their expectations. 
They announce that they are in love with some other person and since that makes them feel better, then it doesn't really matter how their spouse feels. Using hindsight, they think they should not have married their spouse and that it somehow wasn't God's will, so they argue that a divorce gets them back on track to doing God's will. This is the go-to excuse of our generation, by the way. I never should have got married in the first place. I was wrong back there. I want to make it right by getting rid of that wrong and starting over again. That's not the way to go. No one seems to care that they exchanged vows before God that were based on willful decisions and not on selfish desires. For better or for worse, in sickness or in health, for richer or for poorer, as long as we both shall live. This is why it's not such a good idea to let people write their own vows because they often leave out these key phrases. In fact, it turns out what they mean is for better until it's worse, in health because sickness is demanding, for richer and richer and richer as long as I feel love for you. That, that's the essence of most people when they come in seeking a divorce. Jesus is not so much interested in feelings as he is what we would call fealty, which is a little used word that means faithfulness to the Lord. Marriage is a promise made to God. Even if you did not make vows to God, marriage is not a human institution. It's his creation ordinance for the protection and the provision and the preserving of the human race. We have a responsibility to God to live within his definition of marriage. There is no other definition of marriage other than what God gives it in the Garden of Eden. And so verse 10, in the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. No matter how long you've been a Christian, there are always questions, there are always things that need clarifying in terms of exactly what you believe. Uh, you're always on this quest uh, to, to know more about the Lord and what he said. And so he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, you might be wondering why, since Jewish women had no right to divorce under the law of Moses, Jesus would mention them divorcing their husbands. Well, Israel was occupied by Rome, and under Roman law, women had more rights than under the law of Moses. Mark's gospel was written with a Roman audience in mind, so his mention of women divorcing their husbands makes sense. Also, as the gospel went forward out to the Gentiles, this issue would come up again and again and again among non-Jews. Divorces here must mean divorces without biblical grounds. It must mean that because as we've seen elsewhere, Jesus and Paul established there are biblical grounds, namely sexual immorality and abandonment. What I'm saying is you can't just pick out this verse and say, well, wait a minute, Jesus says here, if you do this, then the person commits adultery. Yes, he does, but we know what he said elsewhere. And, and the Holy Spirit is editing this in a certain way so we will get a different point not to discredit what Matthew said or what Paul will later say. And so we take the whole uh, in order to get our understanding. And so when he says whoever divorces his wife, he means without biblical grounds. What Mark's omission is telling us is that the Holy Spirit wants to emphasize a different aspect of divorce and namely, he wants to emphasize what it does to your spouse, and I would say to other people as well. Jesus says you commit adultery against your spouse. It indicates the adulterer injures his or her spouse. 
Adultery causes injury. It harms your spouse. I was going to talk about some of the pain, but I, I don't want to cause any of you who have been through that to relive the pain you've already gone through or are going through on account of the infidelity of a spouse. I think it's obvious that it hurts. Is that the kind of person you want to be? One who knowingly, unashamedly injures the person you once promised to care for under any conditions until death do you part? Is that who we are? See, we, we, we don't really stop to think, I guess, when we're contemplating these activities. No one says, hey, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, I promised this person that I'd be faithful and that I would care for them no matter what. So am I really the person that's gonna say, I don't care about them at all. I just care about myself. I would hope, I'd say, no, I don't wanna be that person. Sexual sin overall causes severe injury. This is something we forget when we're arguing with people about chastity and holiness and these issues. While you are focusing on a temporary physical and emotional pleasure, you are ignoring lifelong pain that it inflicts savagely on others. In a passage about maintaining sexual purity, the Apostle Paul warns, and I quote, no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such and also we forewarned you and testified. The idea of defraud seems to be that you injure their walk with the Lord by taking advantage of them simply to satisfy your own lusts. I'm not sure how the Lord will avenge the defrauded person, but you shouldn't want to find out. Hey, when I contemplate sexual sin, a verse like this ought to pop up saying, you're gonna defraud people and I am going to avenge them. You know, there's that point in a lot of movies Something awful has happened and the hero says, I will avenge you. And you know, yeah. He's gonna get his arms cut off and then his legs and then his tongue and then that's just the beginning. We love that kind of stuff, sadly. So the Lord says when you contemplate sexual sin, when you commit sexual sin, you're defrauding someone, you're hurting them severely and I will avenge them. And that's a, that's a scary thought. I don't wanna know what that means. In the midst of a long passage warning against adultery, the writer of the Proverbs says this, this is from Proverbs 6, can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can you walk on hot coals excuse me, and your feet not be seared? And then he summarizes the injury saying, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding, he who does so destroys his own soul. These are serious words. What we take in our society is just everyday activities of people giving in to their lusts or whatever. The writer to the proverb says, you are destroying your soul. If you think all of this sounds old fashioned, it might surprise you that adultery is still a crime in 21 of the United States of America. And cases are still prosecuted from time to time. Let me briefly discuss one concern some of you might have. Let's say you realize that you had no biblical grounds for your divorce and you're now remarried. Are you therefore guilty of habitual adultery? Well, the answer to that is no, you're not. The Apostle Paul addressing some of these complicated issues advises, let each one remain in the same calling 
in which he was called. Today, if you're married, you're to stay in that marriage. If you got there by committing sin, you confess it to God and repent, and you thank him for grace that is sufficient for all of our many sins and failings. If you are casual about divorce, you're derelict in your marital duties towards God and towards your spouse. You're likely thinking too highly of yourself and not at all as a servant. Don't be a derelict, be a disciple. Comes down to this, am I going to live to please the Lord or myself? That's a basic fundamental question and when I answer correctly, when I'm living to please the Lord, all these other questions are pushed aside. Answer the question in the affirmative and your marriage will be transformed back into a beautiful garden. Let's pray.